Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. You're listening to the Irish Times Women's Podcast. I'm Roisin Ingle. Later on in today's show, I'll be speaking to Orla O'Connor, Director of the National Women's Council of Ireland, about former Garda Magella Moynihan, who was threatened with dismissal from the force in the 1980s for having a baby with a colleague while unmarried. But first, on Tuesday afternoon, a jury returned guilty verdicts in the trial of two 14-year-old boys for the murder of Anna Creasel in May last year. Known throughout the trial as Boy A and Boy B, They were 13 at the time of the murder and they are now the youngest people in the history of the state to be convicted of the crime. Boye was convicted of the murder and violent sexual assault of 14-year-old Anna Creasel and Boy B was convicted of her murder. Both of them were remanded in custody in Oberstan Children's Detention Centre until July 15th, the date of the sentencing hearing. Irish Times crime correspondent Conor Gallagher was in court for the duration of the trial and he has written an extensive report, around 17,000 words in length, covering every detail of it, which you can find on irishtimes.com. I spoke to Conor for today's show and I began by asking him to describe what kind of picture emerged of the girl at the centre of this harrowing trial, Anna Creagel. Well, Anna Kriegel was adopted at the age of two and a half. She was born in a city in western Siberia um, where she lived for the first two and a half years of her life before being adopted by Geraldine and Patrick Kriegel, who it was their first child. They brought her home to Ireland. When they brought her home to Ireland, they were so excited. They handed her out, uh, uh, I'm not entirely sure you pronounce it, a Marastroika doll. You know, the little Russian dolls out to their friends and inside it had a picture of Anna. Uh, Ed, and that's they, they, that's how they, they, they announced the good news to their friends. They were incredibly loving parents, incredibly involved parents. Um, Anna, from what we know, and, and, and we, we only know kind of snapshots from her life as described by her mother in court, um, she lived in a, a, a very loving, caring home. Um, Anna was someone who absolutely loved to dance. Her mother said she loved to sing. She was always jumping up and down the, the living room um, practicing. Uh, she was in the uh, a, a local dance troupe, and that dance troupe even formed a guard of honor at her, at her funeral last year. She uh, wanted to play guitar at the time. She was she planned on playing learning guitar at, at, at the time of her death. She was someone who was an exceptional swimmer. This was aided by the, by the fact that, as her mother said, she was a typical Siberian. She was a strikingly tall, um, beautiful young teen. Um, she's five foot eight. Um, Patrick Kriegel even, you know, I, I, I wouldn't call it a light moment, but one of the few smiles in court was when Patrick Kriegel record, recalled how she was taller than him even. And um, and she was even in a fashion show organised by older kids um, in, in, in secondary school to help raise money for charity. That's another aspect of Anna. She volunteered for absolutely everything. She just loved to be involved in things. Um, and that kind of bleeds into the other thing of she was also someone who was quite lonely she did have friends she had family who were loving she had cousins but she wanted as every teenager does 
you know, a wider group of friends. She wanted to be popular as, as, as we all did when we were kids. Um, but it just didn't work out for her. She was bullied horribly online and offline. She was um, bullied even before starting secondary school. And her resource teacher had signaled to the parents, listen, I'm really worried about Anna. She's so innocent. And the parents could see this as well. And they went to the secondary school to discuss what plans could be put in place. But even before that happened, Anna was being bullied online. Uh, you know, Anna loved social media and YouTube and would put herself out there and she'd make these videos about like, you know, like putting on her makeup or dancing or, or, or whatever. And she'd get nice comments, but she'd also get like just unbelievably cruel comments like kill yourself and whatever, like unbelievable. And the parents took screenshots. And these these were from older children in the school, I believe. And the parents uh, took screenshots, sent them to the school. We don't know what was done. We didn't get into that level of detail there. Um, so she, like, by the time of her death, she was someone who was really vulnerable to being taken advantage of. And that's why we heard a lot of that stuff. And a lot of people, and it's absolutely fair enough, when we were reporting that stuff about her, being like, you're dragging her name through the mud. I can totally see why people thought that. But the, the prosecution had a point in, in giving that evidence. It was to show how vulnerable she was to being taken advantage of by people who would seek to do her harm. Tell us an overview of the case then, as it, um, I know it's a very long story, and the one in the Irish Times, which I would urge everyone to read on irishtimes.com, is, is I think it's something like 17,000 words long. We're not going to get into that level of detail here, but just an overview of what happened to Anna. Um, well, I suppose the prosecution alleged that Boy B went to get Anna on behalf of Boy A. Um, he... Uh, they said that Anna had shown an interest in Boyer, got cast him out beforehand. Um, so they kind of knew that Anna would be glad to see Boyer. You know, she, so and, and the evidence supported this. Her face lit up when he called to the door and she bounded out of the house. She was super excited. And then the prosecution alleged Boy B brought Anna through St. Catherine's Park and to this horrible abandoned house on the outskirts, about three kilometres walk away where she was beaten to death by Boy A uh, as Boy B watched. Um, so the prosecution case against Boy A was nearly entirely forensic. So there was a huge amount of uh, forensic analysis done of, of the scene and of, of the clothing. And Anna's blood was found on Boy A's boots. Um, her blood was also found on what became known as the murder kit. And this was a backpack found in Boy A's bedroom which contained a, a skull-like mask, a homemade skull-like mask which was referred to in court as a zombie mask. It contained knee pads, shin guards, gloves and a, a snood which is kind of a scarf that covers the bottom half of your face. Um, her blood was found on several of those items including this, this horrible mask. It was found on the inside and outside of the mask and her uh, Boy A's semen was also found on, on, on a piece of Anna's clothing. So the forensic case against uh, A was overwhelmingly strong. There was no forensics linking B to the scene whatsoever. There was CCTV showing him bringing Anna through the park, but there was no um, CCTV of him bringing her to the house, directly to the house. So the case against B stemmed almost entirely from his Garda interviews. And um, the Garda played a blinder in this they were exceptionally professional they were constrained highly constrained because they were dealing with 13 year olds and you know first of all there's an ethical moral thing of you're dealing with kids but there's also this knowledge that everything you do 
will be picked over in court. And if you're seen as being too oppressive or hectoring or trick tricking, you know, dishonest, you know, barristers are going to highlight that in court, highlight that to the jury, that evidence might be thrown out altogether. But the guards, over the course of eight interviews, uh, I think they ran to a total of 17 hours, um, um, gradually got Boy B to admit more and more and more. So Boy B initially, uh, his first interview, st- stuck to his original story that Boy A had uh, be- begged him to go and get Anna so they could discuss relationship issues. And he said he did this because he wanted to do a favour for a friend, walked Anna to the park and, in his words, handed her over to Boy A uh, and then kind of let them walk on ahead to give them some privacy. And then he went home to do his homework. He said that's the last place he saw them. Gradually, that story changed. You know, the detectives said to him, listen, CCTV doesn't back that up. You're not telling us the whole story. So he said he changed his story to alter, you know, to fit that, the CCTV evidence. Uh, and more and more, he admitted more and more until eventually he said he was indeed in the house, in the abandoned house, that he saw boy A uh, attack Anna, uh, choke Anna, flip her to the ground, remove some of her clothes and he said uh, 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 like halfway through the attack he ran off he fled he was terrified and he heard Anna scream um, he said he had no knowledge of what Boyer was going to do and he said he, he he denied taking part in the attack in any way which seems to be borne out by the forensic evidence in terms of his prior knowledge of the attack he also told detectives that a month previously Boyer had said to him hey do you want to kill someone uh, this is in school, and he replied, "Who?" Boye said, "Anna Crajel," and uh, and he, he basically said, "You're only messing, get lost, or something to that effect." So, you know, obviously for the prosecution, this was a clear sign he knew something was going to happen. F- for him and for the defense, he said, "Well, you know, people say I'll kill you all the time." The defense said, "Has your mom never said I'll kill you if you're home late again?" Um, so uh, you know, that was one of the things. That, uh, one of the big, for me, one of the biggest questions for the jury was, did he believe he was messing then or did he think he was serious? Um, so in a very, very small nutshell, that was the evidence uh, against both boys. And just to be clear, there was only this forensic evidence against, which is was huge, obviously against Boyer, but he never uh, said he was in the house or never admitted anything. Like exactly, that. yeah. He said, he, the, as far as he went was, he was in the park, Boy. B came to the park with Anna. Anna asked him out. He led her down gently, he says. Then he walked on alone and he says two men, unidentified men, attacked him and beat him up until he managed to fight them off. And this explained why he had so many injuries. He had visible injuries. And, uh, of course, the evidence also shows that Anna fought her attackers fiercely, um, which would also be a, a, a very good explanation for those injuries. And the guilty verdicts came through of of murder for for both. Um, But I suppose there was lots of evidence as well, and you write about it uh, in your piece, uh, evidence that the jury didn't hear. Can you take us through that? Yeah. Um, So there was a a good bit of legal wrangling. And, you know, a lot of people have asked me, what was Boyer's defence? And to put it very bluntly, he didn't have a defence. His defence was uh, his barrister, very skilled, experienced barrister, Patrick Gadesby, uh, told the jury, it's not up to us to prove a case. It's up to the prosecution to prove a case. We enjoyed a presumption of innocence at all times. So he was basically putting the prosecution on their proofs. 
Um, there was a huge amount of data found on the devices of boy A in his bedroom, and these included 12,000 pictures, the vast majority of which were uh, pornographic. And within that, a small subset showed uh, sexual violence, including a man wearing a mask, a woman being choked while another man looked on. Um, there was also uh, there was also search evidence of searches on the phone for child porn, animal porn, uh, horse porn, and dark web. Um, and these, the or some of this evidence, the prosecution submitted, um, presented a picture of the boy's attitude towards consent. Uh, the judge weighed it up, and he's, you know, he said basically the test is prejudicial versus probative. So all uh, all evidence against an accused is prejudicial by its very nature, but it's. Um, it's usually allowed in because it's also very probative and relevant to a crime. In this case, uh, Mr. Justice McDermott said the balance was was the other way. The prejudicial side was way up, and the probative side was was down. So for that reason, the the applying that test, the evidence wasn't allowed in. You know, it didn't make much of a difference to the case. Do you know, it was the prosecution would have liked to have it in, but I think they would have been pretty confident, and they would have been probably expecting it not to get in. Um, you were there throughout the whole thing, uh, which can only imagine how, you know, that's your job, as I said at the beginning, but uh, it's just such an unusual case in terms of Ireland. They're the youngest um, people to be convicted of murder in this, since the history of the state. What was it like, the atmosphere, um, in terms of the, the different families that were there and what you observed? The first week was just a super intense pretty awful atmosphere um there was just a huge amount of emotion in the room um just by the very fact that you had the fa on one side of the courtroom you had this family who'd suffered this unimaginable loss and and you were constantly aware that everything you were hearing as upsetting as you might find it there's people just a couple of meters away who they're talking about what was done to their own daughter and you're also aware that there's two other families on the other side, you know, whose kids are innocent until proven otherwise, who's, who are also coming to terms with what their child may or may not have done and the fact that their child might be going away for a very long time. So it was just a really bizarre, um, you know, I've covered a lot of trials, but that was by far the worst, just in terms of coming home every day, feeling absolutely drained and you just, couldn't imagine what the other parties are feeling if you know uh, uh, just a, what is essentially an onlooker is feeling um it calmed down i guess as as time wore on um but never it was never like a normal trial like in 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 other trials even murder trials as as kind of you know insensitive as it might sound people and relax is the wrong word, but people kind of get used to it, you know. People would start to chat to each other, you'd chat to the guards, sometimes you'd even chat to the accused family, you know, you know, when you're getting your coffees, um, and people just kind of get on with the work and the emotion goes out of it to a certain extent. Um and you know, sometimes there's even like, you know, someone says something kind of funny in court and people laugh and stuff. So, you know, every murder is a tragedy, but you know, it kind of becomes slightly normalised during the course of a trial, but that never seemed to happen here. That the sheer horror and like this distress never went away throughout the whole trial, if that makes sense. Um, yeah. 
Um, you were there when Boy B's father had that sort of eruption in in the court? Yeah, that came directly after the verdicts came in on Tuesday, uh, two o'clock on Tuesday. The verdicts came in and the, 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 the jury who were, you know, absolutely professional throughout, um, they just seemed to get on with the work and they didn't even come back with any questions. Um, they seemed to take it all in their stride, but except when the, the 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 verdict paper was handed over to the registrar by the forewoman, and you could you could see her hand was clearly shaking, you know, and the uh, for the, the the registrar asked, you know, have you reached the verdict? Uh, and she said yes before he could finish the sentence, and he asked her to confirm the verdict for guilty, and she said yes before he could finish the sentence, and then it was like kind of a a silence for a few seconds and then boy uh, B's father started shouting and a prison officer came over and said, listen, he's too head up, you know, he needs to go outside and kind of get get it together. Ex the jury were still there and the judge was still there. Um, he did that. He came back in and hugged his kid and then it was more, more shouting and he was kind of clapping at the court and in a kind of very sarcastic way and directing expletives towards the guards Um and and basically asking her, saying something effective. I hope you're happy with yourselves. Um, you know, it's a man who believes his. He was a lot of criticism of the father's reaction, but this is a man who believes his son is innocent. You know, you know. So you know, you, you could understand where he's coming from as well. If you actually believe your kid is innocent, uh, Boyer's family were a lot more reserved. They seemed to kind of shield the boy from. People were looking over and they seemed to kind of stand in front of him and they were hugging and there was tears and then they were they were both led away. Um, they were remanded in custody to Oberstown and uh, taken away in guard vans. Anna's family uh, were there every single day. Um, how did you observe them? And then I suppose after the verdict, what was the, the reaction there? A very dignified, composed, calm presence throughout most of the case. They, they, as you said, they never left court for a second. You know, if they wanted a bottle of water, someone, you know, one of their small group of supporters who were in court with them or the victim support person would go out to the canteen and get it. Like, they were there for every second. Even the really obscure legal argument, which didn't really mean anything to anyone, they were there and the man was taking notes. Um, there was a couple of, like, really difficult bits where both were crying, like, the bit where we watched the video of B's interviews and he said he heard Anna scream from the house. That was just harrowing the way he said it. And the mother, oh, it was heartbreaking. She was just broke down. And the uh, other bits and pieces, like they were even there for the pathology evidence. And pathology evidence is horrible. It's horrible because... And the boys didn't have to be there for that. No, they were excused because of the nature of the evidence. But... People think the media report everything. They don't. Like for taste reasons, you know, there was only kind of a, you know, a kind of a sanitized version of the pathology evidence. Um, you know, and the mother had to sit through all of that, and the father had to sit through all of that. Um, so then at the, at the end, uh, but those were the exceptions. Most of the time, they they remained very to, like together, often looking upset, but together, you know. And uh, the verdicts came in, and they were. Uh, they stayed seated, like you could see the emotions kind of building in them. But and then when the jury were filing out, they stood up and kind of nodded to the jury, and some of the jurors kind of nodded back or gave them a little bit of a smile, and then they just embraced their their each other and their their supporters and were led away to the victim support area upstairs, where I think a lot more family and and friends were were waiting for them, and there was a lot of hanging around. There was 
um, you know, there was people were wondering, will they give a statement? You know, uh, so we were all kind of hang, hanging around, and I think in the end they decided just to give a very brief statement because, well, I don't know, I don't know the reason, but there is this thinking that there shouldn't really be too much commentary pre-sentencing, and that's something that certainly the guards, you know, the guards didn't make a statement, uh, for example, uh, but we might get one from them later after sentencing, but they just made the, the briefest statement outside. They um, basically said, you know, Anna was a dream come true for them. You know, and she'll never be forgotten. And then they kind of went on their way. Uh, I, I've I've no doubt they'll be back on July fifteenth, and any other day that's that's scheduled for for the sentencing. And you sort of alluded to it there. You know, there's a lot of speculation going on, as we know, on social media, as you'd expect. A lot of, you know, people saying things about the boys and a lot of stuff about their identity. There's a case going through at the moment because some of the. The photographs were were on social media and that that's going to rumble its way. But this isn't the time, uh, I suppose, now. And there will be that time for speculating, for looking at, for example, the evidence that wasn't heard by the jury, the pornographic images, for trying to look psychologically at these two young people and what went on. Um, I mean, there's a legal, before sentencing, that's not really the appropriate thing to do. Yeah, and it's also because we don't have all the information. You know, I, I think I mentioned it in that article I wrote. You know, trials are really good for determining one really specific thing. Is there enough evidence to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that someone committed a particular offence? They're really not good at saying why something happened or if pornography is the, the, the demon or social media or bullying or a combination of all three. So it's it's tempting. Uh, it's really tempting to speculate and to wonder. There's going to be psychological reports um, of these boys, probation reports and school reports which we will hear about in the next day, which will hopefully give some insight. But I also think even after that, there's going to be a lot of things we don't know and we'll never be able to understand about why and, and what happened that day. So uh, thank you very much, Connor, for all of that and um, for all your work on the case. But t- tell us what happens now and what the where the, what's happened to the various parties. Um, so uh, uh, boys A and B are remanded in custody to Oberstown, the only child detention facility in the, in the state that's out in North Dublin. They have spent about a month or two there when they were first arrested before they were granted bail um, while their assessments will be carried out on them and they will be back before uh, Mr Justice McDermott on the 15th of July Um in the normal course of events, if these were adults, we wouldn't be waiting that long. It'd be an automatic life sentence, which is an average, it runs at an average about 17 or 18 years at the minute, I think. That doesn't apply when they're children. So the judge actually has um, complete discretion when it comes to sentencing. Um, what's happened before is uh, judges have imposed a life term, but in, uh, put in a review after a certain number of years. So basically... You serve eight years, you come back before the court, there's reports and everything, you see how likely they are to re-offend, you can order them to be kept in prison, or you can order their kind of temporary release or staggered release or, or that sort of stuff. Or he could just impose a 10-year sentence, a five-year sentence, a, you know, he could impose a 50-year sentence if he wanted. There is a European directive saying that, uh, or the European Court of Human Rights, I think, has said that whole life terms for children are not allowed I don't think that's a possibility anyway. Um, uh, so basically, he has complete. He's at complete dis- discretion in what 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 sentence he wants to impose. Um, 
Anna Creasel is gone and her parents have been living with that. But I suppose to some degree, this is some kind of milestone in their uh, grieving process. Yeah, like I, I often wonder, I think every family is different just from covering these trials and some get a lot of closure from from getting a verdict and for, like they're so they're still in the middle of it. It's it's barely a year. It's barely over a year since since Anna died, so they're still in the middle of it. This has been an absolute rollercoaster. Like other murder cases, they they could have been dead for five, five, ten years. You know, I don't know if that's better or worse. Connor, thanks very much for coming in. The Irish Times Women's Podcast is brought to you by Green and Black's Velvet Edition, sumptuously smooth dark chocolate. Now, when she was 22 years old, Magella Moynihan was charged with breaching Garda Síochána disciplinary rules for the transgression of having premarital sex with another Garda, becoming pregnant and having a child. She gave birth to the baby David in Galway Regional Hospital in May 1984 and subsequently gave him up for adoption. Ms Moynihan and her partner Martin, whom she began dating in 1994, also have a 21-year-old son named Stephen. Her treatment by Angarda Siakona was revealed in a documentary broadcast on RT Radio at the weekend. It was also reported by the Irish Times in 1985, although Magella was not named in the report. The Minister for Justice Charlie Flanagan and the Garda Commissioner Drew Harris have both apologised to Magella Moynihan since the RTE Doc on One aired last weekend. Writing in the Irish Times this week, Orlo O'Connor of the National Women's Council of Ireland spoke of the raw pain in Magella Moynihan's story, which she says the pain of generations of women who were shamed, silenced and were pressurised into giving up their babies. She adds her name to a long list of women wronged by this country and... Orla said that her story will empower other women in similar situations to come forward if they wish to tell their story and to seek answers and importantly apologies. And Orla also said we owe her a debt of gratitude for breaking her silence. So we asked Orla O'Connor in to talk about Magella Moynihan. Thanks very much for coming in, Orla. Thanks, Roshan. Tell us about Magella Moynihan and what happened. Yeah, I mean, I think Magella's story on so many different levels is really appalling. The fact that she had this, you know, young young woman who really always wanted to be in the guards and then finally gets there, um, has a relationship with, with another man and then suddenly all of the forces of the state fall down on her. Um, and really, you, you know, I mean, in a way, her story, it was, you know, set in the context of 1983 and what was going on in Ireland at that time but in so many different ways from her treatment in the guards where after she becomes pregnant and she discloses that, um, then, you know, immediately they're into looking at disciplinary action. They're looking at will they sack her or not um, instead of what she absolutely needed at the time was support. And they put her through a horrendous process. And I think, you know, in the uh, documentary on Documentary One where she talks through just the amount of interviews that she was called into, the questioning that went on. And then finally in the disciplinary hearing, having to go through dates and times and being put under and so much pressure um, was just astounding. And, and the, as usual, the Catholic Church involved. Yeah. Because you can't, couldn't do anything about it. I mean, uh, the involvement of the Catholic uh, Church in, in Magella's story is, I mean, it is still shocking. I mean, I, I know it was, you know, 
And I've heard a lot of people say, you know, that was 1983. 1983 isn't, isn't that long ago. But the fact that the church had the power to intervene and to call the commissioner of the guards to the Archbishop's Palace and... Um, request that she not be fired and the only reason they were requesting that was they felt it would open up um, open up the space for more women to go and access abortions so there you know the manipulation by the church is so evident in, in Magella's story and, and is I, I think is very shocking but also raises many questions in terms of um, where else the church intervened in, in terms of um, acts by the guards um, you know, how many other times did they call the Garda Commissioner up in relation to other inv- investigations? I think there's a lot of questions there that that absolutely need to be explored more. And we know that her morality, this was what it was all about, wasn't it? And she was almost held up as this kind of, this is what we do to people like Magella Moynihan, anyone who steps out of line in this immoral way. Yeah. That was one of the phrases, I think, one of the... Yeah, morality was, was used, like as a term against her so many times but and, and within the context of that this was bringing um, the guards into disrepute and bringing discredit on the guards and that was part of their um, disciplinary procedures uh, which is you know really I, I mean really incredible but also incredible as well that that was allowed you know be considered a criteria that, that, that a woman who's going to have a child outside marriage that that's the um, criteria in terms of bringing the guards uh, discrediting the guards and that that was obviously sanctioned by the state um, as being allowed to happen um, and you know wh- while and, and, and in Magella's story you know while she stead in the guards she talks about her life being completely changed because of the pressures brought to bear in her to give up her child for adoption and I think that's really a heartbreaking piece of the story and and is one I, I mean from listening to, um, because there's been a number of interviews now with Magella but you could really hear the this isn't a story in the past. The impact of that and particularly being forced to give up a child for adoption has had an enormous, as you would expect, an enormous impact on her that lives with her till this day. So, you know, I'm, I'm conscious that, you know, sometimes the narrative around this is, you know, well, that's an Ireland of the past and things are better now. But there are women, women like Magella and many, many more women who are living today with the impact. So I think it's really important how how we respond to the needs of, of Magella Moynihan and of other women in terms of trying to redo the mistakes of the past and not repeat them. Yeah, I mean, I'm just reading here from a piece Cathy Sheridan wrote this week as well um, about the Garda Representative Association had failed so comprehensively in its purpose to protect and defend her that she wasn't even aware of its existence. And this was despite persistent, targeted bullying, sexual harassment and being shunned by colleagues. When news of the charges was leaked to media, the then General Secretary of the Garda Representative Association, Jack Marinan, cleared up the mystery. He said, I'm the father of a young lady myself and there are other young ladies who may be listening from time to time. I would not like anyone to think that this would be regarded as normal condition or appropriate behaviour. There's only a few hundred ban Gardaí and by and large they're extremely highly moral group of ladies and I see the Garda Siakona as people who should be giving a lead and that's the way they were describing their colleague, their person, like you say, who should have been supported. And that was the, you know, the Garda Representative Association, uh, which is, yeah, I mean, astounding, I think, on on a few different levels. And I I think as well in terms of, you know, part of the piece around what happens now, it was, and I mean, the very swift apology by um, the Garda Commissioner 
uh, Drew Harris was important. I also think it was very important that he said he would meet with her because that's what Michelle was looking for. But but there are a number of other pieces in relation to this, like her the information on her files has has gone missing. So you know what yeah, happens she, when she went to access now, the files, she they were somehow not there. Um, and and that's important in in terms of for Magella and also for other women in terms of how you gather your story. Um, and and I think that they need to they need to. Um, it's more than just an apology that's needed here. Yeah. Uh, and I also think the same for, from the Minister for Justice as well, because this is about, you know, the state making a formal apology and meeting with Magella. And also, I think it's raised many questions. We've seen that in the media over the past week um, in terms of adoption and women in Ireland who were forced to give up their, their children for adoption. Uh, and what's being done now in terms of that connection between um you know, people who are adopted and their natural their natural mothers. And I think it is welcome, actually, um, I think it was just yesterday that the Minister Catherine Sapone has is now delaying the adoption bill because of many of these issues that have been raised. And, and Magella's story, I think, has really helped to do that. And, and, and to put back the spotlight on the women who are affected by, you know, by the treatment that they had, that they need to be at the centre of this new legislation. And, and I think that's an important lesson. So I, I think Magella Moynan has been incredibly brave. Um, and she's she's been, I think, so strong in terms of continuing over the past week and being, you know, insistent in terms of the, the answers that she needs. And, you know... It, yeah, I mean, I think she's such an inspiration for, for other women in those situations. One thing that she said really struck me was about how she said for years she carried the shame or she was made to feel that shame. And it's like by speaking out, she'd been able to give it back to where it really belongs, which is the people who treated her so disgracefully. So I love that idea. And I think yeah. so many women in this country have carried shame for things that they had no reason to. And I love the idea of us all sort of putting it back and saying, no, we're not actually going to take that anymore. Putting it back where it belongs and the perpetrators and the misguided, cruel behaviour of so many different institutions and organisations. I just finished by reading that end bit from Cathy's piece, actually, uh, when she talks about uh, Magella's interview on RTE. Mm -hmm. She says the upside is a happy relationship, an adored second son that she had after uh, the baby David. But um, and the baby David did come back to her as a 27 year old man. But the cost, she alludes quietly to five attempted suicides and the relationship with David hasn't been great. But I'm hoping it will develop into a powerful relationship. And I think that's the least she deserves. Absolutely. But like you say, fair play to her for talking about it and. You never know, we could be hearing about more of these cases yeah, because I of think, her bravery. Mm, yeah, and, and, and I think there are many, many more women who are in Magella's situation. Um, and I think it's important, and this isn't just about the guards, but for all of our state agencies to look at how they treated women. And and I think Magella's story will bring more women to tell their stories. So so it's really important that those those reviews take place. Yeah, Orla O'Connor, thank you Thanks, very much. Rosie. And that's it for today. Thanks very much to Orla O'Connor and to Conor Gallagher for speaking to us and our thoughts on the women's podcast are with Anna Creasel's family. The podcast is produced by myself, Roisin Ingle, and by Jennifer Ryan with JJ Vernon on sound. Until next time, thanks for listening. the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.